Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things anxiety and big emotions, and really helping support our kiddos and teens be successful and resilient. And the past few weeks, I've really been focusing on how we can support our kids' success in school, and today is no exception. But I actually have a fantastic guest where we're talking all about parental pressure and things that we do well-intentioned to support our children that could actually be hindering our children's success and their well-being over the long term. So today, I'm very excited to have Dr. Christopher Thurber. He enjoys creating and sharing original content for business leaders, independent educators, and youth development professionals. He's a board-certified clinical psychologist, educator, author, and father. He earned his BA from Harvard and PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA. Uh, He is a dedicated teacher from a very young age, and he's got more than 30 years of experience working with camps and independent schools. He's written numerous book chapters and scholarly articles on leadership, homesickness, and youth development. Chris has also shared his opinions and expertise on national and international radio, television, print media, podcasts, webinars. He's been on the Today Show, NPR, and CNN. Uh, He is the co-founder of ExpertOnlineTraining.com. It's a popular and respected educational resource for youth leaders. He's also designed the only empirically validated homesickness prevention program called Prep for Camp. Chris serves as one of the psychologists and instructors at Phillips Exeter Academy. So I'm very honored to have him here today talking on my podcast. Hope you enjoy. So wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Thurber, for joining me on Overpowering Emotions today. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you. So maybe let's just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I am a clinical psychologist by training, and during the academic year, I work as a clinician and an instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy, which is an independent school on the seacoast of New Hampshire, about an hour north of Boston. And throughout the year, I do a lot of work with schools and summer programs, primarily overnight camps, but also parks and rec departments, providing staff training workshops and professional development. Sounds like you're very busy. Lots of different things. I enjoy my work. Yeah. That's great. And you've got a new book that's come out. Tell us about your book. Yeah. So the book, which I co-authored with another psychologist, Hank Weisinger, is called The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure. And it was based on our observation that loving, well-intentioned parents will sometimes or often apply an unhealthy or harmful kind of pressure in uh, what what we identified as an instinctive way. Um, parents, of course, love their kids and want the best for them, but we were able to research the distinction between harmful pressure, which impairs performance and mental health, and healthy pressure, which actually enhances performance and mental health. And that's what we focus on in the unlikely art of parental pressure. That's so interesting. And actually, I talk a lot about the accommodations that we make, you know, on the resilience front and anxiety mm. front and supporting our kids. And we've got this pre-built need to protect our children, but we sabotage them and we actually cripple their resilience. So I'm always mm. talking about some of those accommodations, but the same thing too, with pressure, we were well-intentioned. So maybe let's start with differentiating some of the helpful pressure versus the more harmful pressure. Sure, sure. So first, you know, think about pressure as you would in a conventional way as a force and think about it also as an instinctive force. Again, as I said, parents 
love their children and want the best for them. It's normal for those parents to express expectations for what they want their child to do. And that is um, something that parents apply in a developmentally appropriate way. That is to say, you know, for your toddler, you expect them maybe to be learning um, pleases and thank yous or how to share a toy um, for your elementary school age child um, that can expand to taking some responsibility for schoolwork or paying attention to the needs of other people and so forth. And all of that is wonderful. What Hank and I were able to glean in our review of the literature on both mental health and the relationships between parents and children is that often, again, in a loving, well-intentioned way, parents will say things like um, very specific sorts of things, such as um, we're at a gymnastics meet and um, they might say to their child, you know, you can see the leaderboard. You're only a tenth of a point beyond uh, or behind first place. You really need to stick the landing now if you want to go anywhere with your gymnastics. And at first pass, it seems that a comment like that is um, encouraging. And that's what the parent is intending. They want to give their child a pep talk. But by saying um, you you need to, or perhaps even more harmfully, I need you to stick the landing. And by pointing out something that the child already knows, which is that they are not in first place, they're behind. Um, and by, and here's the most harmful part, stating the desired outcome in a very narrow way, such as if you really want to go somewhere with your gymnastics, you know, if you want this to mean anything, you have to win. And what we found is that, and that's just one example, but I'm just sort of drawing from some of the examples that we share in the book. When parents or coaches or teachers or other adult caregivers state the desired outcome, first of all, in a very narrow way, like the only successful outcome here is first place, or they state it in a very high stakes framework. You know, if you don't do this, nothing great will come of it. Um, if you want this to be consequential, you have to achieve this. Again, very do or die, high stakes kind of a way. Predictably, performance goes down and kids become more anxious and depressed. Now, we can all remember from our observations of sports or our own lives or other circumstances where in a very high stakes situation, somebody has performed magnificently. You know, the game seven of the 1987, you know, NBA championships and Larry Bird gets a pass from out of bounds and sinks a three pointer to win everything for the Celtics. Those iconic moments are, you know, impossible to forget, but they are not representative of how people perform in a high pressure circumstance. In fact, if we want to stick with NBA for a minute, um, NBA, like a lot of professional athletic associations, analyzes player performance and uh, dives deep into the statistics just in order to understand, you know, players and under what circumstances they're doing the best and maybe who's going to be traded or how the team should be constructed. 
And it's very telling that if you look, for example, at um, players' shooting percentages, they are below their personal average in clutch plays. So if you look at the last two minutes of a basketball game when there is two or one point difference between the winning team and the losing team, or maybe they're tied. So the score is very close and you're in the last two minutes of the game. Um, even the best players underperform. They perform below their average shooting percentage. And that's, again, that's typical. We, uh, as human beings, tend to um, not necessarily choke and do horribly, but underperform relative to our own average in a high stakes do or die kind of situation. So when we impose that as parents unintentionally, we're actually working at cross purposes to our stated objective, which is to encourage our kids to have them do better. And, you know, likewise saying to a kid, you know, look, um, you know, this morning is the SAT or the ACT and, you know, you really have to score high if you want to get into an Ivy League school and actually have some networking opportunities and a decent salary when you get out of school. And of course, you know, that sounds absurd, but I've, I've sat in a room with parents saying that to their children. And um, there are so many wonderful educational opportunities, not all of them university or college-based. And of course, Ivy League schools have been around for longer than most other schools in North America, but they are far and away not the only excellent schools. And we know from the research that finding a school that is a good match to a student's interests and abilities is far more important than the name of the school. So yes, there's a certain social cachet that goes along with top tier colleges and universities, not just in the United States, but around the world. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter in terms of somebody's happiness and what they achieve. Right. And, and I talk a lot about this shared delusion that we get sucked into. And one of them is going to the best, getting the highest grades to get into the best school, to get the best jobs, to be right. happy. Right. And, and so, and, and there's just so many pieces, like I'm just thinking of the all or nothing thinking that we develop, right. It has to be perfect or I'm just a complete failure. And right. we're kind of reinforcing some of those messages, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And it's, um, you know, one of the metaphors that I often use when I speak with um, groups of parents or the faculty at a school is um, dancing with high heels versus sneakers. Um, if you were taking dancing lessons, if you and I, Caroline, were at a, you know, a dance class because we wanted to learn the, the rumba together or, you know, the swing, um, you know, if, if I was wearing high heeled shoes um, and as a novice dancer accidentally stepped on top of your foot, um, the fact that I weigh 154 pounds and I'm doing a certain move, you know, is going to result in a certain amount of pressure and I think pain if I land on top of your foot. And if we took that exact same move and I was wearing sneakers, still not going to feel good that my foot lands on top of yours, but my weight and the force of the movement that I'm making is distributed over a wider surface area and it's not going to hurt as much. Unhealthy pressure is like that stiletto heel. It's concentrated and 
and and painful to kids whereas you know a sneaker would be less painful and the difference between a narrowly defined outcome and a broad definition of success is the difference between the tip of that high-heeled shoe and the sole of you know basketball sneaker right so in that sense if we were to use that gymnastics example then and looking more at the broad outcomes what would be a healthier way for a parent to broach the subject mm. with their kiddo so instead of making reference to things that the child already knows like you're not in first place um, instead of making it a do or die situation like you know, you're not going to go anywhere. Nothing will happen with your gymnastics. It'll be inconsequential if, you know, you are not the winner. And instead of focusing on the leaderboard and first place, saying something like, you know, Caroline, I'm so impressed with your performance. Today has been fantastic. You did such a great job on the uneven bars and coming up is your best event, the floor. And you've practiced a lot to get to this point. Please know that I'll be on the sidelines cheering you on. And I hope you have a good time and do your best. You know, when we focus on the intrinsic joy of an activity or the interest in curiosity and exploration, if it's something academic, when we put much more emphasis on effort as opposed to outcome, and we acknowledge what that person that young person has done thus far whether it's you know you've you've rehearsed a lot or you've practiced a lot or you've studied a lot and we just acknowledge the effort up to that point um and we we provide encouragement that is much more relational than it is outcome based um i'm proud of you because of this and um i'll be supporting you in this way that's something that will enhance kids' moods and on average their performance. Right. Yeah. So focusing on that process and the effort versus the outcome specific. Okay. Yeah. Here's a question though, but what if you've got a kid who doesn't put in the effort? Mm. They don't want to study. They don't want to practice. They just <laughs> expect to go and play the game or do the performance and be perfect. So that, that sometimes happens. Um, and there are two, at least two factors in what you mentioned. One is they're not either wanting to or not being able to or inclined to or motivated to put in the effort. And the other is they still expect perfect performance. So just take those separately. Low motivation can be caused by a lot of different things. Sometimes kids are intimidated by the skills of the other kids around them. Sometimes they are not interested in the content, whatever it is. They, they're not interested in piano lessons. You want them to take piano lessons, but they're interested in electric guitar or they're interested in soccer, whatever it might be. So I think one of the things that all parents and other caregivers need to do is yes offer kids a wide range of different opportunities and prior to engaging in that upper whatever it is um, share with them your expectation for how long they're going to stick with it in other words um, if you and i are going to play just a game of catch in the backyard i don't need to give you a lecture about you know caroline 
we're going to do this for at least 10 minutes or otherwise it's not worth my time. I mean, that would be silly. But if you say, I would like to sign up for, you know, the Parks and Rec baseball team, say, okay, let's talk about that because, um, you know, you have some options. There's baseball, there's also flag football, there's soccer, and there's, you know, um, some arts and crafts activity. Uh, let's talk about those. And if you still choose baseball, that's great. And let's look at the calendar together. Are you aware that the season is from, you know, the beginning of September to the end of October, whatever it might be, so that you have a sense of the time commitment and you have a sense of what's involved and there are two practices a week and they're each an hour and a half and you're not always going to get to play. But again, it varies this conversation from child to child based on their interests and abilities as well as their developmental level. But I think that ensuring some perseverance is partly on the parents in how they set things up. I myself and probably every parent has heard an initial expression of enthusiasm from their child. I, you know, I want to try this. Okay, awesome. We'll sign you up. Done. And then it comes and the child has no idea what sort of commitment is involved. And now the parent is upset because their child is wanting to quit or they're not satisfied that they're getting to do it enough. And what's, so it is incumbent on us as caregivers, teachers, coaches, parents, et cetera, to gauge that child's motivation, but they can't accurately gauge it in the same way we can if they've not really participated in, you know, if they want to sign up again for something they've done before, great. But if it's the first time they're trying a musical instrument or they want to take a you know computer design class, whatever it might be, um, it's up to us to accurately describe what that commitment is and how long it's going to last and take out, as I said, a calendar. Um, of course, low motivation when it's the consequence of being intimidated by other kids or not being stimulated enough because it's just too easy. They already know how to do pottery from the previous class they took and now this is just more of the same um again those are conversations to have with your child to ensure that they're not putting forth a great deal of effort is you know the is caused by x rather than y or z each of those has you know a different kind of solution expecting to be perfect or expecting to win or expecting to, you know, get to the next level in a certain period of time um, is also something we need to tune into when the expectation is unrealistic or our kids are being perfectionistic. You know, that's, that is a separate factor and again, can be sort of caused by different things, but benefits a great deal from our non-judgmental adult perspective and kind of exploring with your child well it does feel good to win and it can feel really good to create something or study for a test and get a nearly perfect or perfect score or look at the sculpture you've made and be really satisfied with how it turned out just the way you wanted it to um, and of course you know failure and frustration are part and parcel of learning. In fact, I would argue that we need to teach our children how to fail better than they currently do and really get something from it 
that is both um, building of character and also building of, you know, skill and intelligence. But whenever we spot expectations that are unrealistic in our assessment, I think we need to point that out to the child, not in a devastating kind of a way, like, oh, well, there's no way you're ever going to become president <laughs> or, you know, but, um, oh, well, you know, God, that would be amazing. What would it take for you to um, achieve this thing or, you know, become a doctor or a teacher, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, I think, make the mistake of early categorization or, or just categorization generally. And I, I, you know, I see kids do this in the school where I work. Um, and then, you know, this is a secondary school, a high school and, students have learned either to externalize blame, you know, they're upset because they're getting a C minus in their math class. And when I ask them, you know, is that something you want to talk about more? Uh, you know, and they say, well, no, not really. Um, you know, my teacher's an idiot. Oh, okay. So that's why you're getting a C minus is because your teacher is an idiot. And, you know, and, and I use humor a lot in therapy and, um, you know, try at the right times to be you know, flippant so that I can point out maybe some um, distorted cognitions that kids have, or they might say, um, I'm just not a math person. Yeah. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> we're, we're, we can all do some kinds of math. And when we're born, we have, um, you know, an intuitive sense of, of numeracy or quantity. Um, it, it's just, it is a false statement for anyone on the planet to say, I am not a math person, but to wholesale discount, you know, there's an entire um, sort of field of thinking or way of seeing the world that, that I cannot do um, unless you've got some sort of brain injury. It's just not true. And, um, you know, to pull kids back from, as you said, it's sort of all or nothing thinking is really important. Mm -hmm. And, and, and things like that, you know, even, I don't have a math brain or anxiety, you know, they're hearing messages. They come by it. Honestly, it's in, it's in our blood. It's who we are. It puts them in a very hopeless, helpless place. Like, huh, there's nothing I can do about it, you know? Right. And, and so then there is no growth and development and looking for those opportunities to learn from my mistakes and everything that you've talked about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Looking at, you know, focusing on those narrow outcomes and being careful that we're not instilling. I think there's so many little messages about per even perfectionism, like, hey, buddy, let's, you know, ice daddy's birthday cake. And, ooh, I'm just going to fix that little spot that you just did, <laughs> right? Like there's little messages that we're sending all the time yeah. that, oh, it's not quite right. It's It's got to be perfect. So I have to come in and, and fix it so that it's perfect. Um, but are there, are there other pieces that parents do that, you know, this unhelpful pressure that um, other traps that we might fall into as a parent? Yeah. I mean, again, I think defining success very narrowly. Um, framing things as do or die. Those are the most common. Um, but right behind them is personal overinvestment in outcome. And, you know, I'm a parent, I have two boys who are now 18 and 20. And I can say from experience, as well as, you know, having coached swimming and archery and worked at a summer camp for 33 summers, there is tremendous 
undeniable vicarious pleasure that we as adult caregivers get from the achievement of the young people we're working with, whether they're biologically related to us or not. And I don't want to discount that at all. It's absolutely wonderful. And yet, if it gets to the point where the bulk of our happiness hinges on a particular achievement of our offspring or our players or students, then we're in trouble. And so are they. Uh, because, you know, we're going to say things like, you know, whatever school you get into is absolutely fine. Of course, daddy would be so proud if, you know, you got into the University of Maine because that's where I went. But, you know, you're a different person. You, you know, you, you need to do what you want to do and, um, you know, find the right school for you. And that sounds again like, well, there are some good messages in there about the student's individuality and what's a good match. But what you've inserted is a little bit of over-involvement in, it's going to be perceived by the child as over-involvement personally in, you know, their their outcomes. And sure, you can, you know, be proud or have a special kind of pride that your child is going to um, follow in your footsteps in some way, or, you know, but but stating it explicitly risks their feeling that actually now, even though dad said, yeah, let's find a school that matches your interests and abilities, the thing that's actually going to make him most proud of me, or uh, I suppose at the limit, the thing on which, you know, his love for me is contingent is very specific. And that feels like a lot of unhealthy pressure to kids. So I get asked a lot by parents, well, wait a second, wait a second. Um, are you saying that I should never talk about what my expectations are? Or do I need to, are, are you saying, you know, Dr. Thurber, I need to lower my standards? I say, absolutely not. In fact, you know, you know, in the introduction to the book, Hank and I make a very big deal uh, about explicitly saying, we would never tell parents to lower their standards. Um, we would never ask you to not state what your expectations are for your child. But we're, we've been thinking for, you know, centuries about pressure in a kind of Goldilocks way. You know, there's not enough, um, in which case your kids don't achieve. There's too much, in which case they're having panic attacks. And then there's this middle ground where you apply just the right amount of pressure. And we want to shatter that myth and say it's it's not about quantity it's how you apply pressure not how much and so um, we want you to be honest with your kids we want you to state your expectations um, but we also want you to and we don't want you to lower your standards but we don't want you to be over involved in their particular outcomes um, that is easiest to detect, I think, when you catch yourself as a parent saying something like, um, you know, I need you to get into some kind of a good school. So I've got a sticker to put on my back windshield. I mean, it can be any school that is a good match for you. But, you know, I need I need you to get in somewhere so that I don't have to worry about you financially or, you know, like, well, these things are not untrue in the fact that, you know, 
parents like some bragging rights or they want to be able to um, feel good about where their child is situated as they launch from the nest and eventually become, you know, financially self-sufficient, all good. But it is, you know, it is not a way to encourage your child to get to their homework tonight if you say, you know, I need a sticker on my back windshield or I, I need you to be financially independent. And this is a, an important distinction. I'm not saying that parents shouldn't put stickers on their the back window of their car or shouldn't be proud of their kids or shouldn't want their kids to be financially independent someday. What I'm saying is stating that as a way of motivating their child to put forth effort and to achieve things is misguided. That is a kind of statement of personal overinvestment in that moment that will work at cross purposes to what you actually want. Right. Yeah. So what then would you say to be able to establish your expectations, but then be able to focus on the process and, you know, let the outcomes be whatever they be? Mm. How do you maintain that balance? You know, I love the way you asked the question because the focus on the the process is um, what, you know, Hank and I spend a couple of chapters talking about tuning in more emotionally to what's going on with your child. And, and again, let's be clear in the back of your mind is I want my child to put forth great effort. I want them to, um, you know, achieve great things, but first make a distinction between, you know, being the best or the child being their best because, you know, only one person can, win the gold medal in the 100 butterfly at the Olympics. But I hope that the parents and coaches of all the competitors and the people who didn't even make the team but worked just as hard to try to make the team have people who love them, who are proud of them. And that's where the process is really important. So being able to engage your child on an emotional level, especially as they apply some of their effort and develop some of their talents is really important. To state that differently, we can all celebrate good outcomes, but I don't know that anyone needs to write a book on, you know, how to be joyful when your kid achieves a goal, like, because we just do it. (laughs) Um, but, But it is the process of engaging with your child as they work to you know, study, rehearse, practice, et cetera, that I think we can pay more attention to and be more successful as parents in nurturing our kids' development. Let me give a specific example. Both of my boys uh, play the violin and um, have achieved a lot musically in that. And I owe that actually to my wife who herself is a musician and was able to provide a lot of um, at-home instruction to supplement the lessons they were getting. So, you know, that's, I feel very fortunate um, to be in a musical family as a non-musician. And um, every parent has personal skills, character strengths that they can bring to the table um, to share with their children and um, nurture them in a way that is capitalizing, I guess, on the strengths of the family system. However, you would think, you know, 
here's a you know a set of parents one is you know an accomplished musician another as a degree in child psychology like we're going to navigate this music lesson multi-year commitment pretty well right well yes and we also like every parent had some missteps and now i'm going to give you a really you know valuable practical application of the process and weaving your child's perception and and uh, of your parenting and the emotions that go along with that when my boys would have recitals say once a year when they finished suzuki book three and you know part of that instructional program is you've memorized all these pieces you're going to perform them publicly so great and my wife simo would be in the habit in a very well-intentioned supportive way of being backstage and backstage when they were five or six was just in, in the room next to the living room um, and then it was off to the side in the you know small performance space and eventually it was actually backstage when they were you know performing like in theaters but we we were do doing the same thing i was setting up the video camera and my wife was you know for the 20 minutes prior to showtime back with one of my boys whoever was performing sometimes they perform together giving them last minute tips remember on this you know crescendo you need to really focus on your vibrato and this and that and all of these last minute tips which she again felt was the very best way to support them and we also engaged in something very conventional at the end of the performance um, sometimes people would bring small bouquets of flowers we would bring a small bouquet of flowers it's a nice way to publicly acknowledge you know the wonderful achievement of being able to perform publicly these pieces that you've memorized okay prior to writing the book but after realizing the distinction between harmful and healthy pressure and wanting to engage as a parent in a more emotionally intelligent way with my kids i said to simo my wife you know we do this thing where you know i'm the av guy and i don't know there's a whole lot different or better that i could do with that but i'll take any feedback that anybody's got um and you're backstage with the boys i don't know that we've ever asked either of them what their perception of what we intend to be supportive actually is and this is something that you know parents myself included rarely engage in asking our kids how does this feel to you i'm wanting this to be supportive or motivating or inspiring how does it feel to you and their answer doesn't mean we necessarily need to change what we're doing. Um, like they might say, oh, you know, look, I find it really annoying that you always remind me what my curfew is. I'm like, okay, point taken, got it. Um, and maybe we're still going to remind them, or maybe we won't. In this case, you know, we asked Dacha, my older son, um, and this was when the boys were maybe 10 and 12. So mama is backstage with you and offering you these last minute tips. Um, trying to get you set up for success. How does that feel? And they had different answers. So Dacha said, actually, I don't like it at all. I like that you're back there with me. 
what I need to do in the, you know, 20 minutes before I get on stage is first tune up my violin, warm up my fingers, play through parts of some of these pieces. The part that isn't helpful, that makes me more anxious, and he didn't say that impairs my performance, but of course, my psychologist brain is thinking, yeah, and impairs his performance if he's, you know, experiencing high anxiety. He said, I, I don't like it when you remind me, well, there's this piece or, you know, you get to this spot and you sometimes forget this measure, make sure you do this. All of those last minute reminders in the moments before I get on stage, really not helpful. And, you know, to her credit, Seema was not at all defensive about it. She said, oh, so glad I know that. What is it that you do need? And he said, I want you to be there because it feels really good. Um, just not saying anything, because if I haven't learned it by then, the last minute reminder is not going to help. Bring some water because I always have a dry mouth. And having you there in case I need help tuning up or, you know, I break an E string and we need to replace it at the last minute. That's where, that's where I need you. So your, your physical presence, but not your verbal presence. That's my wording. That's what he asked for. Sava, on the other hand, my younger son said, um, you can give me two last minute reminders. That's helpful. And let me demonstrate to you to boost my confidence kind of that I can play through them. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, you know, Dacha says he has a dry mouth. I never do. So, you know, you don't need to bring any water, but, but and this cracks me up to say this, he said, but I want you to, you know, remind me like, do I have my shirt tucked in? Is my fly zipped? You know, I'm more self-conscious about, you know, I'm not going to look right when I get out on stage. So, okay. And kids are, you know, my two kids, like everyone's kids, um, or the children they know in their classrooms and in their sports teams, like everyone's got their idiosyncrasies. But my point, Caroline, is had we not asked, we would have kept peaking their anxiety and never known it. So asking in a calm moment, we didn't ask them, you know, prior to in five minutes, they're going on stage. Oh, by the way, was this helpful? But I'm talking about nowhere near the performance, the game, the test, whatever it is. What kind of support do you need? Um, when you think about the ways in which I've supported you in the past or giving you a pep talk before you go to the chess competition or whatever it is, I, of course I'm trying to be helpful, but I actually want to know, is it helpful or is some of it helpful or what is what do you imagine would feel helpful, right? So that was a transformative kind of experience. It feels very risky as a parent to ask your kid to evaluate your performance, but it's a risk worth taking often. Um, and, and we often joke about like some of the things that, you know, but as parents, we're constantly telling our kids how their behavior makes us feel but we're rarely asking them how our behavior makes them feel. So that's another thing that really helps depressurize the situation. And I'll say one other thing too, just as a footnote, because we wanted to reward their effort, not the outcome, we still would get them a bouquet, but we would give it to them the day before, or we would give it to them backstage before they got on stage because 
the words that started coming out of our mouths were, we are so proud of your getting to this point. Anyone who has gotten through, you know, Suzuki book three has put forth time and effort and been able to move through really frustrating moments, days, weeks, and you've achieved something incredible. We are excited that you're going to go out on stage and share that with people and take some time in between pieces when people are applauding to look at their faces, you know, right before you bow or when you come up from your bow, look at how much joy you're bringing to the audience. And we're, you know, again, we're so happy that you have persevered and put forth this effort. And, and, and that's when we're providing the token, you know, the material token of our gratitude and our pride, the bouquet. There's nothing wrong with giving kids a bouquet, you know, and if you're an audience member, you don't have the option of giving it to them backstage, although you could, I suppose, give it to them the day before. But, but there's a special meaning for us as primary caregivers if we're giving the bouquet at the end of the performance, what we're emphasizing is the performance. Whereas if we're giving it to them backstage or the day before, what we're emphasizing is all of the time and effort it took to get there. And that's another cool thing for parents to think about. Again, um, you could do both, I suppose, or neither. But when we offer praise, we want it to be not just meaningful in content, but well-timed. Yeah, that's so true. I, and I love those examples, you know, the practical concrete examples that you've given, because I think that, you know, just talking about this abstract, you know, how do we tap into that emotional intelligence and talk about the process and how do we actually reward that piece? I mean, those were beautiful examples. I know um, we actually ask our girls all the time, you know, my daughter's struggling with math right now. So it's okay. Well, you let me know, how can I help you? And she's like, I don't know. Well, these are some ideas that I have, but they both play ringette. And early on, we actually created their, what do you need before a game sort of plan? And they both like, they've got their playlist of music for the drive to the rink. Um, and I know my oldest one, she, uh, she's in grade 11, but she, so she's this teenager, but she wants three hugs from dad. And in between every hug, she wants this kind of feedback. <laughs> one of them, I'm not really too, I just found out about it the other day. I'm like, I don't know if I love that, but she's the one who wanted it was to say, you're the best or be the best, be the best. And I'm like, oh, but it came from her. Um, my little one just wants a, you know, fist pump. She's too cool, even though she's only 11, but she's too cool for a hug. She just wants <laughs> this little pep talk from mom. She only wants kick it, you know, say, say, kick it. That's it nothing else. Yeah. And then just to be at the edge at the, of the goalie's net, right? Like at the down rink so she can see mm -hmm. me and that's it. And a little bit of, so yeah, asking them for that feedback is so important. And I often do scaling when I work with families, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how naggy is mom, right? And so we've already developed a relationship. And so they're usually, you know, nine, 10 and they're like, okay, well, how can we bump that nagginess down a little bit? Mm -hmm. and I think it's so insightful. And, and, Obviously, yelling isn't helpful. I think we all know that, but but kids are really insightful into okay, if you just ask softly or the timing, you know, even with when you ask me to do my chores. But I also love, you know, when you give that bouquet of flowers, right? 
celebrating that process of, of how mm-hmm. we got here. And now let's recognize that because we, we often forget all the hard work that we've put in and we, we look at everything based on our, even just a test, we look at the outcome of the test. So I think those are beautiful examples, mm. man. I, I've got so many things that I think we could talk about and so many other questions, but I know um, not everyone has time to, you know, spend five hours talking about everything, (laughs) listening to everything. Is there any last minute um, comments or tips just for parents or even professionals? Because I have a lot of professionals who work with families, um, you know, that you last minute words that you want to share. Well, Besides saying I would love to return as a guest anytime because it's really fun to talk with you, I will say we are always going to make mistakes as parents. And, uh, you know, having written two books for parents, the Summer Camp Handbook and now The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, I have some of my peers who tease me about, oh, well, since you do everything right, which of course they know is not true. That's why it's teasing and they're being sarcastic. But I think, um, I, you know, my next book is about learning from the mistakes we make as parents. And I would just say to anyone listening, one of the best things you can do as a parent is when you absolutely lose it and you do yell at your kid or you just yell at the world because the thing you've been making or the sink you've been trying to fix has now sprung a new leak or, you know, life does not go always as planned and everyone has limits and adults lose their tempers, sometimes at their kids, sometimes at each other, sometimes, like I said, at the sink. But when you can, you know, when you're, when your kids are part of this or a witness to it, I think one of the best things you can do when you feel ready, and it might be five minutes later, an hour later, or the next day is debrief it. Um, Wow. You know, when daddy was fixing the sink the other day and uh, the, the, the other pipe burst and I was covered with water, uh, I really lost my temper. Um, you know, I was yelling and screaming. I was saying how stupid the sink was. I threw the wrench across the room. Um, talk about narrate your like internal experience. And if you've had time to reflect, I was so frustrated because I didn't even know what I was doing and I wouldn't have even been working on the sink if the plumber hadn't canceled and we needed water to be flowing to the sink. And I, I thought I could do it and I, I came pretty close, but because I didn't know exactly what I was doing, I forgot to turn off the spigot down in the basement, which would have, you know, stopped the flow of water to the sink all together. And then I could have opened, you know, whatever it is, um, when we make our children um, witness to not just the human range of emotions, but also let them hear us understand how we might handle things differently in the future. Um, Reassure them that we still love them, because sometimes they're hearing us say things that we regret or or behave in ways that are not our best selves. We humanize the process of both learning from mistakes and, if need be, making amends and repairing relationships that have been, um, you know, that have hit a bump in the road or, you know, uh, been damaged a little bit. And, you know, there's no statute of limitations 
on conversations. Um, so there's, you know, it could be a week later, it could be a month later. And sometimes those events become part of family lore. But I think we're setting a good example for our kids when we do a sort of emotional behavioral debrief of a time when we weren't our best selves. Which is so important. I mean, our kids learn from us and we're the number one role model and just sharing all of that. I don't have to worry about setting up a debrief. My kids constantly are telling me because they listen to my podcast and they're like, mm, you're not doing what you tell everybody else they should be doing. So we, they call me out and they force me to debrief about all of that. So. That's awesome. I love it. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. I would definitely love to have you back on this podcast. Wonderful. I'm Everyone who's going to listen is going to walk away with lots of great ideas and things to think about. So thank you very much. Thank you, Caroline. I look forward to talking again. 